consider this statement. It is such a profound statement that as you ponder and think about it more and more, you will realize the truthfulness of that statement. For example, each week I need to plan my lectures out. And if I don't plan them for classes, one, my students will know, and two, it'll probably be a dud. Some of you know at your work spots, going into a meeting requires some planning, some preparation, perhaps even an agenda, some outcomes and some possible wins. Without doing so, it would be fruitless. Even something as simple as going to a grocery store with limited budget requires a planned list of items to buy. All this to say, failing to plan is planning to fail. Today we enter into a section of Mark's Gospel called the Passion Narrative. In this, it's the last days of Jesus' life prior to his redemptive death and glorious resurrection. And as Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry, we see that God, through Jesus, is actually planning and setting everything up perfectly. So today our goal is to kind of see what that plan is as we look at Mark chapter 14 in a message entitled, Personal Preparation for the Savior. Would you bow with me as we ask the Lord to guide our time together? Thank you for your perfect plan. Thank you that you have revealed it in your word and also through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, thank you that most of the people in this room have understood it and embraced it as part of their life plan as well. Yet there may be still others who have not. And so we pray that our time today would be enlightening for those who have not yet understood this plan and affirming to those who have already embraced it. Thank you for the perfect example of Christ, the Son of God. Guide our time together. Help me as I teach that I be careful and clear. And we want to commit our time to you now. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 14 is, a, again, a fairly lengthy chapter. We're going to be looking at the first 25 verses. And I thought it would be just simple for us to go straight into the outline. So it's a three-point outline as always. Here we go. The first nine verses is what's called the anointing, verses 1 through 9. And then the second is the betrayal, verses 10 to 21. And finally, the communion, verses 22 to 25. Let's begin by looking at the anointing, verses 1 through 9. Right off the bat, in verses 1 through 2, we see that two days before the Jewish Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, that the chief priests and the scribes were planning on arresting Jesus and ultimately killing him. The reason for this is they, as the establishment, thought Jesus was a threat to the government of the Romans as well as a threat to uh, divided powers of which both chief priests and scribes currently had. But they needed to do this carefully by keeping everything on the, on the down low under the radar in order to not stir up the crowds in the following of Jesus against the establishment. And so they're kind of going behind Jesus and looking for any and every opportunity to entrap him and to basically get at him. We come to a familiar episode that's found in a few of the Gospels, 
starting in 14.3. Let me read the passage to you. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of anointment, a pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So let's stop here for just a second. Jesus is going into a house, the house of a leper, which is interesting. That violates Jewish laws of cleanliness because you were not supposed to go into that kind of setting. And he finds this woman who takes a very expensive flask, an alabaster flask, that contains expensive nard. I'll explain what that is in just a moment. She breaks it and then pours it over Jesus' head. Now, this was a cultural practice. It was a practice of honor as well as purification and cleanliness. But what we're going to see here is that it was actually symbolic. It's symbolic as a precursor to the death of Jesus. You see, nard was used typically for the embalming of people who passed away. And so it's kind of strange, right? Jesus is surely not dead at this point, and yet she's doing this. It's a future foretaste of what is to come with Jesus. He even clarifies this in verse 8 when he says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So it's interesting because anointing means typically it's a special assignment. Jesus Christ, Christ's name means the anointed one. But this anointing is not just a title. It's for a specific function. And the function would be that Jesus' mission was that he was born to die. That he came to earth to take on our sins and to take it away for all of mankind. Now what's interesting in my side Bible reading this week, I'm finishing up the Gospel of John. And I actually read John chapter 12, which is the John parallel of this Mark account. And in this, the Apostle John gives a little bit more detail on this specific discussion. Take a look with me now in verses 3 through 6. What John does here is he actually identifies who the woman is and he identifies the person who says, hey, this was a waste of time. And when you see who the characters are, you're going to say, oh, now this makes sense. So first, it's Mary, and you're saying, which Mary is this? Because there's several in the Bible. It's like John Kim or Grace Lee in a Korean context. This is Mary of Bethany. She takes a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. Again, that's a sign of worship and devotion. The house was filled with the fragrance and the perfume. But look at this. Who is the person who now says, man, we should have used this money for other things? It says in verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, one of his disciples, which parenthetically it says in John's gospel, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, and John answers, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So again, when you read the parallel gospel accounts in Mark's account, which we're in, and then John that gives us a little more holistic uh, picture, we understand what's going on because we're now able to put the actions together with the characters. Now here's where both Mary and Judas are radically different. Mary did this out of her devotion. And she had a desire to give Jesus glory as is notable. Again, the John account, not only was this broken, but she said that she wiped his feet with her hair. An amazing action because, again, feet in the first century were very dirty. They were like you wearing Birkenstocks or sandals all the time. They didn't have closed shoes at that time. Some people didn't even have shoes. And yet she would take the sacred part of the body in the Roman culture, the hair and the head, and go to the dirtiest part, the feet. It was a complete picture of her submitting herself in devotion and desire to glorify God. This is such a notable statement that, or action that in verse 9, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Wow. Here's a couple of takeaways from this portion of the passage. The first question that I asked myself that I'd like to ask you now is, are we devoted to Christ like this woman? That we would take a posture that is not typical, a debasing posture, and do this because of our overwhelming love and sacrifice for Christ. Which now asks the second question, do we sacrifice and desire to give him glory in this way? Not on occasion, but consistently as a lifestyle and not periodically. You're wondering why I'm wearing a suit. Well, I do care for you, so I like to look nice for you. That's one secondary reason. I am just coming from another church in Cerritos. There is an inaugural service for a friend of mine who's starting a an independent church within a Korean church. And um, one of the things that I got to do is give the charge, but it's within a larger Korean church. And part of the charge was my thankfulness to the Korean ministry for their sacrifice. They made it happen. They gave them space. They gave them the 9.30 time slot, which is pretty key time within Korean worship. time. They gave them the main sanctuary. They're supporting them, they bless them, and I just went up and said, thank you for doing that. One of the things that I also exhorted the second generation, this is a Grace Redeemer Church, I said, learn from their sacrifice. Watch how they give. Mimic how they pray. And when they get older, pass it on to the next generation. That next generation is Generation Z, the Centennials. Maybe some of you have younger brothers or sisters. I have children of that age. I hope and pray that what is more than just taught, but rather what is caught, is a sacrificial desire and devotion to glorify God. Because a lot of it is not just our words, but how we live and basically carry ourselves. 
some of you who are parents have experienced this. Maybe you've experienced, all of, all of you experienced this when you were younger, where your parents forced you to go to church. Or perhaps they bribed you. After church, we'll go to McDonald's and get you a Happy Meal. And you're like, hooray, because you do know better. And you weren't looking forward to the sermon. You were looking forward to the the Lord's Prayer that you could pray as fast as you can and then get to your Happy Meal and toy. And I'm trying to say, let's show people, our younger generation, that we actually carve out Sunday not as a duty, but as a devotion. A time where we don't have to go to church. No one's forcing you. I don't think your parents force you, most of you, I don't think. But because you want to go to church. This is what the woman did. And yet, the critic, Judas Iscariot, spoke out against that with something that sounds reasonable. Man, you could have used that money for the poor. I bet you there are a lot of people who say, oh yeah, why not? But see, they were missing the point. It's not about works. It's about worship. And it's not about doing religion. It's about knowing Christ. And that's why it's important for us to have an understanding of what the gospel means. The gospel is good news. It's embodied in the person of Jesus, and it's personal, it's organic, and it's relational. And so if people say, well, you have to do this and do that, I mean, they may be helpful things, but when it comes down to the bottom line, the baseline idea, how are you in Christ? Do you know him? Do you spend time with him? Do you relate to him? Well, this leads us to our second point. Going back to Mark chapter 14, verses 10 to 21. Now, this is set up for the betrayal. Right after Judas says, man, we could have used this money for better things, Judas sets it up. And so starting in verse 10, it said, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Wow. So the story goes as follows, that Judas is consistently greedy. We're told that he would receive 30 pieces of silver, which was really not that much during that time period. Yet he was willing to betray the person that had invested in him, the person who had taught and healed and done miracles and shared the good news of the gospel. He was ready to betray him. We're going to see why in just a moment. But there's a couple of interesting preludes, or I'm sorry, interludes in verses 12 through 16. Let me read this to you. Whereas Judas was preparing for the betrayal, the disciples were preparing for what's called the Passover or the Last Supper. Verse 12 says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher, this is Christ, says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, 
and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. The Passover meal was a pretty big deal in Jewish culture. It was quite a feast, quite a celebration. And in so doing, Jesus was giving very specific instructions, miraculous in nature, saying, go and just find a guy out there and tell him that the teacher sent me. Wow. And somehow they're going to receive these people and have this huge feast in their houses. Well, what's going on here? Let's look at some things here. First, Judas Iscariot was a greedy man. This is very clear. And, it, and probably he was willing to betray Jesus because of that greed. But in Luke 22, verse 3, it also suggests that another reason that Judas did this, it says that Satan had entered into Judas and influenced him. So greed with the devil is a bad combination. And the devil, probably knowing this vice, said, let me take prey on Judas. And as a result, Judas was compliant. Verses 10 through 11, though, gives us a preview of what Judas is doing in preparation to betray Jesus. Whereas verses 12 to 16 shows us the preparation of the Last Supper. And then finally, in this paragraph, verses 17 to 20, 21, shows us Jesus talking about his prepare, uh, betrayal as he is preparing the disciples. Do you see all the preparation that's going on? Judas is preparing to betray. The disciples were preparing for this Last Supper. And Jesus was preparing the disciples for the chaos that is ahead. You know what this tells me? God is a planner. He has pretty good plans. And you wonder, well, gosh, that's cool. Where can I get these plans? Here it is, the Word of God. And as we read the Word of God, you will see more often than not some clear aspects of what to do as well as how to do it. Now, some of you are saying, well, okay, that sounds good, Pastor. Where does it say what my career will be, uh, who I will marry, how many kids, should I get that chindake or not? Um, what verse? The verse is simple. Follow, and he'll show you. You see, if he were to try and give an a directive, a script, a plan for each one of you personally, individually, the Bible would be encyclopedic. It would be multiple volumes. And for Asians, the K's and the L's would be particularly long, right? But he's not going to do that. God is simple. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And a second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Even in that account, that sums up the Jewish Torah, which was 613 rules and regulations. He boils it down and says, here's the baseline, bottom line thing. Love God and love others. It's that simple. And so if that's the case, then I ask you this question. How's it going with that? How's it going with loving God? And we're going to share in just a moment some demonstrable ways to do this. But I wanted to throw one more thought to you here right before we get to the last point of the communion, something that I wanted to set this up for. I call it a cultural point of clarity. In verse 18, it says this, and as they were reclining at the table and eating. Now, my parents, I think I've shared this with you, they're very much into etiquette. 
If you don't know who that is, you can Google Emily Post, okay? And so in an interesting way, because my parents came to the States in the 50s, they had a, an American Western etiquette. So in my parents' house, we have something called a nook. You probably don't know what that is. It's, it's a nook and bar stool. It's kind of like if you went to a restaurant like Denny's, it would be like a booth. So we have that at my parents' house. So it's nice, and I remember as a kid, I'm only child, I would just recline. And again, I don't speak Korean, but the two words that came to me, I think they're words or phrases, they would say, Tokbaru was one, which means straighten up, I think, or go straight. And the other one was Bandushi, which I'm like, okay, what is that? Well, I soon learned that those were both statements to saying to just kind of recline and kind of be lackadaisical and was not cool with them according to Western etiquette. And I'm sure that if you went somewhere uh, like a boarding school or if you went to a, a nice executive meeting, that kind of behavior would not be acceptable either. But again, let me just use this language for you. It's not a right and wrong category. It's just there's differences. It's not qualitatively one is better or worse or evil or sinful. There are some cases, but in most cases when it deals with culture, it's just they're different. For example, if you wanted to call emergency here, you call 911. If you're in Korea, it's 119. Uh, it's not a dyslexic thing. It's just saying that they're different. So here's the difference. Take a look. I wrote, this may seem odd to you, and nearly every painting of the Last Supper never shows this of reclining. But typically, uh, the more formal way of being at a meal in the first century was to recline, not to be straight like all the paintings show. I did thorough research of all the Jewish culture. In every case, the idea of reclining was more prevalent. Now, this would explain a verse in John's Gospel, 1323, where it says John the Beloved was reclining on Jesus' side, or in some translations, on his bosom. And you're saying, that doesn't seem appropriate at a meal. It's an affection. That's why he's identified as the beloved disciple. And it's formal. It's a formal expression of affection. So perhaps next time we go to a meal, to be biblical, if the opportunity arises, maybe we could recline together. You don't go on my bosom, but I'm just saying. <laughs> this is important for you to understand because, again, if you read certain translations, I'm reading through the CSV translation, and they love to use that verb, reclining, all through the Gospels. I did a count. There's so many counts of this. And every time on the side notes, it'll say the formal way of doing a meal. So when you think of Jesus hanging out with the boys, it was honorific. It was not like, hey, let's go on the couch and be couch potatoes. It wasn't that. They were honoring him. When you look at the different preparations, whether it be for the betrayal, but more so for the meal, and more so for Jesus' preparation of his departure, in our Christian lives, I ask you this question. In what things do we prepare ourselves? For example, do we prepare for our time of worship? KM people love to come early 
and they'll sit, especially older people, and they'll take a moment to just pause and to pray. I love that. I'm trying to do that more. Here's a big one. Sorry, this is going to hurt. Do we prepare to be at church on time? I've heard older people say Sunday worship starts Saturday night, which means that we get to bed in time so that we wake up on time so that when we come to service, you're not in a full agreement with everything I say. Yes. Yes. Amen. But rather you're alert, as Scripture calls us and exhorts us to be. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourself with prayer, keeping alert in it. Do we prepare to give our offering? Not just when the bag's coming by and say, oh, let's see, how much change do I A dollar. And you resort back to youth group days where you gave a dollar because you were kind of conditioned response to do it. And the funny thing, that wasn't, in most cases, wasn't even your dollar, right? It was your parents who just said, hey, so just so you look good, drop it in there. We're not in junior high anymore. We've matured, we've grown up. It's time to give as much as God has given to us. But that takes preparation. Here's another question. Do we prepare to serve? If you go to Oregon, it's pretty cool. No tax. And they still pump your gas in Oregon. Did you know that? We have our in-laws up there. And I went out and I was going to start pumping the gas. And the guy comes up, the attendant, goes, what are you doing? And I said, pumping gas? He goes, you're not from around here. I said, no, I'm from California. We pump the gas. We serve you here. Whoa. That was kind of cool. Do you like to be served? I do. Are there people here who could be served by you? The answer is yes. Especially as we've grown much larger in the last year, and I anticipate, Lord willing, that we will continue to do so. There will be many more needs. So we have many more opportunities for you to step up and to step into opportunities to serve. But it takes preparation. Here's another question. Sometimes... Do we prepare subtly in our hearts <coughs> to betray Jesus like Judas? You have that seed of something in your heart. It could be a vice. It could be a temptation that doesn't get unplugged and it continues to fester and grow and Pretty soon it turns into perhaps even an obsession. You know, sin doesn't start big. It always starts small. It's a seed. The scripture calls it a root of bitterness. Once it takes root, then it grows. And as we water it, it will continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. The only way to interrupt it is by confessing and saying, I know this is wrong. I've got to just put on the brakes. I've got to cut that, stop it and not do it anymore. So when you read the narrative, Judas was thinking way, at, way back and early on the Gospels, and now it's finally coming to fruition. He's talking to the people undercover and saying, give me some money, I'll tell you where Jesus is. And it sets up perfectly for this ultimate betrayal. You see, planning is not only for good things. We actually plan subtly for bad things as well. Don't do that. 
interrupt it, cut it off, get rid of it. This leads to our third and final point, the communion, verses 22 to 25. This is going to be interesting because although Jesus is talking about this body and blood and the new covenant, it's got to be one of the most uncomfortable conversations that Jesus is ever going to have with people at a, at a meeting table. Have you ever had one of those conversations where you're with people, you're, you're kind of friends or you kind of are acquaintances, and someone brings up a really um, sensitive topic? Like, okay, prior to the recent Kobe passing and the, the big funeral tomorrow, people were always debating LeBron, Kobe. I don't hear any of those debates anymore. And if you probably did this tomorrow at breakfast before the, you know, I think, yeah, they'd probably stone you. <laughs> because there are certain cues of what's appropriate and what's not. And sometimes there needs to be those tough conversations. Jesus has this with his disciples. Look at verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread after blessing it. He broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. The bread here, as you know, is likened to the body of Christ, which will be broken, both the bread and his body, of course. The cup represents the blood of Christ, which was shed. And it was an inauguration of what's called the New Covenant. The New Covenant moves away from the works of the law and religion and now shifts us to a new paradigm, to the grace of God, to a relationship with God Almighty through Jesus the Son. This becomes then the essence of the good news of the gospel so that when we have communion, it's a time to remember what Jesus did for us because communion is always a time of remembrance. But it's also a time of celebration as we think about what Jesus has done for us. He sacrificed himself for us. He died on the cross and took our place for the sins that we committed. He substituted himself for us and atoned, which means covered, all of our sins, past, present, and future. For all of this, our lives should be poured out with thanksgiving. Could you imagine Jesus saying all the things he's doing for everyone? And you're at the table and you're Judas saying, well, I'm going to turn this guy over. He's going to be killed. Isn't that crazy? How subtle, but how magnanimous that is. This is going to be something that the devil probably and others think is the end of Jesus, but it's actually the beginning because as we continue to go further, we're going to see it's all part of the plan of Christ to go to the cross, to even suffer, to be betrayed. And it all fits together because God is a great planner. Let's look at our application, three applications, and then we'll close with our central truth. Question number one, how do we plan and prepare ourselves to live for Christ on a daily basis? Maybe by spending time with him in the word, in prayer. Maybe by sharing and spending time with fellow believers. Maybe by just 
some time of solitude and silence. I've shared with you at the beginning of 2020 that my plan was to read the Bible, the New Testament, in 60 days. And I'm on day 46 now. And I'm reading through the Gospel of John. It's been a real blessing for me. I make sure that I do this every day. I've not missed a day. And I'm thankful because that's my way of preparing myself to live for Christ on a daily basis. I've extended my prayer list. I've been praying for more and more people. This last week I had probably five pastors that I got to pray for. And I find it as a privilege because let me just say this to you. On my behalf and all, all pastors, we need prayer. We coveted that. That's important because I think the enemy, if he's strategic, and he is, the way he takes down churches is he takes down leaders. So I need you guys to cover me and all pastors that you know in prayer. That's how we prepare ourselves to live for Christ on a daily basis. But number two, in what ways do we often betray Jesus? Do we betray him with our thoughts? In our words. We say God, but then we have some few choice profane words that are attached that are unnecessary. With our actions, something as subtle as how we drive in L.A. Now, I know it's crazy to drive in L.A. I'm on all the major freeways, the busy ones especially. But you could even be a witness there, especially if you have a fish on your car. Don't remove the fish. Try to align yourself with what the fish stood for, the ichthus, the, the person of Jesus. You see, we often replay and mimic Judas more than Jesus. And that's not how we should do it. The pattern of the Gospels is to look at Jesus' life and to follow him. And we do this with our fellow brother and our sister in Christ. Again, let me put another plug in. Last week, it was so good with our bridge groups. I hope you got a chance to go to one. And I would encourage you, we're still on the open house stage, please go to one. Even if you live far away, we will make it up with good food and good fellowship. But this is a way for you to prepare midweek to kind of be encouraged. And we're going to start doing some Bible reading. We're going to have prayer meetings, service projects, opportunities just to be with the brethren. Because we absolutely need one another. Don't practice and prepare yourself to be like Judas. Let our fellow brethren help us to be more like Jesus. The last question that I want to ask you in our application is this. Do we celebrate, it should be the life, that's my bad, my typo. Do we celebrate the life we have in Christ? We need to celebrate not only the relationship, but also the security that we have in Christ. Now, how secure is our relationship with Christ? Well, once you commit, John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30 tells us. Look what it says. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And by the way, so it's interesting because in shepherdology, sheep, the shepherd will always speak to the sheep so the sheep will get accustomed to the voice. And so it's interesting that in this farming culture of the, of the first century, Jesus uses that same idea that the sheep will become familiar with the voice of Christ. Well, look what he says in verse 28. It says, I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And look at this last statement. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. Can I tell you what the word no one means in Greek? No one. Not a single person. And it's not because Jesus is stronger than this person. It's because God the Father has you tightly in his hand. No one can snatch you out. Don't you celebrate that? How secure our relationship is with God? I don't know about you, but when I fall or when I fail, I kind of think, man, any other person would just say, again? And just say, I'm done. But not God. Isn't that amazing? He says, again, let me take you back. And I'll help you again and again and again. That's the everlasting love of God. And that's why we celebrate. Eternal life is eternal. It's sacred. It's secure. It's, as one author said, signed, sealed, and delivered. Because it's God's promise to us. Here's the central truth. Jesus himself prepared to die in order to give us life. So should we prepare ourselves daily to follow and live for him. One more time. Jesus himself prepared to die in order to give us life. So should we prepare ourselves daily to follow and live for him. I hope that that's your prayer. I hope that's your action. And some of you are saying, well, how do I do that exactly? I would love to help map out a plan for you. If, that, if this is too general or ambiguous, just come ask me. I'll be here right after the service. I would love to pray for you. I'd love to just chat with you and spend time with you. So if this is something you have a question for, please ask. I would like to invite all of you to join in on that. Let me close our time in prayer.